0: Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Keisha Lindsay, Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies and Political Science at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, about her newly published book by her friends at the University of Illinois Press, entitled In a Classroom of Their Own, The Intersection of Race and Feminist Politics in all black male schools. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lindsay. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you today.
0: Absolutely. I'm, I'm very excited to have you on the program, too. Um, before we get into um, the, your book, can you talk to us about how you came to this project?
1: Sure. Um, I moved to Madison, Wisconsin in 2009. And a few months after that, in the local press, I started to see articles about an attempt to establish a separate school for Black boys here in Madison. And what initially, I mean, my initial response to that was fantastic, uh, because as you know, many of our listeners might know, Wisconsin pretty much ranks last in terms of educating Black students in the country. So my initial reaction was fantastic. At least somebody is now attempting to do something and to really tackle this issue head on in Madison. And as I sort of started to pay more attention to the, the media conversation around the school, the push for this school, I was intrigued by the people, sort of the strange political bedfellows who seemed to be interested in establishing this school. So we had the Urban League, um, a number of sort of wide identified Madison liberals, um, people, you know, local Republicans, promises of donor funding from a number of right-wing educational groups. And, you know, needless to say, this is not a typical sort of alliance that you see behind anything, um, including a school for Black children. So that really got me, sort of whet my appetite and got me very intrigued. And I already sort of had a background doing some research on, you know, popular conversations and narratives around Black men. So that was sort of the initial appeal You know, literally just reading about, you know, the push to establish the school in the the local press. And, you know, really curious about how that fit into um, Wisconsin's sort of long heritage of not educating black students.
0: Yeah. And, I you know, I remember my first time, you know, kind of hearing about these kinds of schools. I was watching um, Soledad O'Brien have the series like Black in America on CNN. And then I came into contact uh, at at a time where I was like, oh my gosh, I want to become a a black principal. I don't see many of them. Um, And, uh, you know, then I come to see, uh, I think, a figure, uh, maybe not a major, but at least a figure in your book, Dr. Steve Perry. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then I started to realize, oh snap, I don't know about this anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, so... I think I had sort. Of, I think I kind of went through a similar process as you. I mean, sort of intrigued, excited, increasingly curious, and I sort of saw the interesting amalgamation of people interested in the school. And then I started to say to my, started saying, "I wonder if this is going on in other places." And it was. And I saw again the sort of interesting, strange political bedfellows. So you know, nationwide, everyone from um, Farrakhan to the Cult Brothers, Hillary Clinton. George Bush I, all of these people have publicly expressed support for separate schools for black boys. And, you know, I was like, why is this? This is an odd combination of people. And then I started to sort of read some of the conversations, the newspaper articles, the increasing amount of journals, scholarly articles on the schools, on the push for these schools. What started to emerge to me is that the schools themselves or the narrative or conversation around the schools really embodies two kinds of political strains. There is a strong progressive anti-racist impetus behind these schools, where I think many of the supporters of these schools do a fantastic job highlighting the realities of structural racism in the nation's classrooms. So advocates of these schools rightly argue um, you know, they point out, you know, the disproportionately high number of black children, especially black boys who are suspended and expelled from schools, who are placed in so-called special education classes. Uh, and many of the advocates of these schools do a fantastic job highlighting um, racism in you know, the nation's predominantly white teaching force. Um, and so there, there's a way in which I think the conversation around these schools does a lot of positive good in terms of highlighting structural racism, and so it's not a surprise in many ways that we've got many people who we might identify as progressives or left of center people who would support these schools. But as I started to dig more mm-hmm. into the schools, I also recognized that something else was going on at the same time—that there's sort of a, you know, a heavy, not in, not in all situations and not among all supporters, but among many supporters of these schools, there's a heavy sort of patriarchal, anti-feminist strain. And, you know, that takes several perspectives and several forms. One is that one argument is that black boys are underachieving because the, the black girls who they're forced to sit next to in traditional classrooms are sexually distracting. Right. And, you know, you know, the black boys would just do better in school if they weren't distracted by girls and you know there's many ways in which this sort of perpetuates sort of Jezebel stereotype of black woman you know sort of hypersexual leading people including black men astray a lot of the school a lot of the discourse also um, you know blames single black mothers um, for black boys being led astray um, and a lot of, you know and a core element of the the push for these schools is that black boys are oppressed not only because they are forced to learn in racist classrooms, but because they're forced to learn in hyper-feminine classrooms. So the argument here is that classrooms are run by women, by white woman teachers, and as a result, the learning styles are more verbal as opposed to physical, um, more cerebral in terms of tactile, and that sort of plays into this kind of notion that, you know, all boys learn one way and all girls uh, learn another way. So I think, so this is sort of, you know, after reading around for a bit, I was like, this is really interesting. These two things are going on. These two kinds of politics are going on in this narrative. And I think it's sometimes tempting as academics to sort of want to say, or even just as people, right, that it's either this or that. The push for this new public policy initiative is either good or bad. And the conclusion I've come to is that it's both at the same time. And as someone who's a political theorist by training, that doesn't, that makes me excited, right? Like, why is it both at the Mm -hmm. same time? And so that was sort of the, you know, the initial impetus, sort of initial research. Okay, it's both at the same time. And then what sort of propelled me further into sort of a book-length project is why? How can it be? Um that i I think very well, I think most of the people advocating for these schools are very well intentioned. How is it uh that despite these well intentions, we have this uh public policy narrative or push for a new kind of policy initiative that is both that both challenges racism and is quite sexist in many ways,
0: yeah, you know that's that's the thing about your book that just to me, just through your synopsis. Uh, through this conversation and and obviously interwoven heavily through your book, that really caught my attention as I was reading because I was thinking about, in particular, what you're saying about how, on one end, you have these competing or, or sort of I guess competing factions. Um, you know, you know, thinking about that, all like yeah, and, and and I guess it's one of those things where when I thought about, you know. When when I start to have a family and such like that, you know the kinds of schools that I want uh, my children to to have. Not you know I ain't got nobody to, to decide with. So this is a this is an isolated uh, a decision right here, of course, which obviously we all know ain't gonna be the case. But uh, just bear with me real quick. Um, but but just thinking about how you know the the thought about feminist politics in a black in an all black male classroom. Yeah, it it's just really interesting especially, you know, looking back a co- I guess a couple months ago looking at um the funeral of of the late great Aretha Franklin and how the his eulogizer, right, Reverend um uh, Jasper Williams was just 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 ridiculously going at the neck of single black women and Let's not forget the, the 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 black woman who raised what four boys as a single mom, as a teenage mom, 13, 14 years old. Yeah, you know, and so so kind of thinking about that and how you know feminist politics and how a lot of our black male leaders and and you know about how these black male leaders are just like they just seem so. So anti to this kind of idea. So when I when I realize that there are places that are at least trying to interweave this kind of um, this kind of politics in their in their pedagogy, I'm thinking like, Whew, hot damn. This is interesting.
1: Yeah, it's it. There's a you know there's a lot going on um, in the and I and I, you know I keep emphasizing that because I genuinely believe that both of these political strains are going on in these schools. And as I said, I think the easy way out is to either say no, these schools are horrific, you know, they're premised on a patriarchal politics. They need to be, in, you know, we need to move away from this policy initiative, or to say no, these schools are fantastic. You know, the ways in which they challenge racism um, are, fa- you know, are 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 Right on the money and we need to pursue you know and i think it's it's both at the same time so then the the question both from a pedagogical perspective a political perspective and an intellectual perspective is what do we do with this messy reality around these schools you know um and that's what i sort of took on for myself you know as a book project to try to figure out the messy reality and i kind of you know the first thing i sort of figured out try to figure out is well how do we explain this and i come up with two explanations one has to do with intersectionality and the other one has to do with what it means to, to make an experiential claim to say, I am oppressed. And so those are the, you know, and I will unpack that as a conversation goes on, but those are sort of the two answers that I come up with to, to, to try to explain how is it that this um, social movement, if you want to call that, or this policy push can be, so politically messy can be both anti racist and patriarchal at the same time
0: yeah and and I think that goes back to the discussion of um all all women are white and all men or all and all black people i I, may, I might be messing up the the phrasing, but effectively all all black folks are men, and you know and and it goes back to even you know me thinking about um my real not discontent, but kind of like my, you know, weirdness about the, ca- people calling themselves kings and queens, and specifically dudes calling themselves kings, you know, black, being black dudes. So I'm thinking, like, my mind automatically goes to, like, what being a king in that way means, and kind of, like, the the power element that, you know, corrupts and kills, shall we say. Um, be, be, because of, you know, this particular bit where I feel like the... The 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 politics is almost automatically um, anti anti feminist or, 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 or sexist or you know whatever particular label you want to place on it, and I think especially the feminist part is what gets a lot of people because what they'll automatically do is go back to yesterday and talk about Susan B Anthony and you know people putting you know the stickers on her grave and we all know the uh, the 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 sentiment that she had for black men receiving the right to vote, um, in, in, uh, in one of the civil war amendments. And so, you know, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's rough for many people, but at the same time, you should be able to, you know, compartmentalize that and have, you know, individual conversations parallel to each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we even have to come, you know, it, it's, I mean, a lot of black feminists have talked about this, right? So it's, it's two sort of realities. One is that past and present civil rights struggles, struggles to challenge racism have often been quite patriarchal, right, both in terms of Black women's lack of access to leadership roles in the civil rights movement, or sort of this masculinist understanding that the race will be free first and foremost when Black men are able to sort of have their natural, you know, reclaim their natural, quote unquote, status as leaders of the race. It doesn't mean it's it's an anti-racist struggle, but one that's patriarchal. Similarly, we can talk about sort of mainstream feminist movement as one that is obviously in past and present focused on challenging patriarchy, but continues in the past and in the present to be quite racist in how it attempts to do that, right? So we all know about, you know, white suffragettes who were aghast that Black men got the right to vote before them. How could that be? Black people are primitive, right? So, um, you know, this, this sort of messy politics that I'm, I'm signaling in the context of these separate schools for black boys. I'm certainly I'm not the first to highlight the messiness and contradictory certainly not you know I, I like to think of myself as sort of continuing a black feminist legacy of highlighting the the absolutely racist politics of the mainstream feminist movement and the often patriarchal politics um, you know, in, in, in our struggles to cha- challenge racism. So I think, you know, Black feminists, many before me and I'm indebted to them, have, have articulated that, you know, in very eloquent ways from Adam Julia Cooper to Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, in some ways, I'm now trying to sort of em- not embrace that messiness, but sort of say, well, what does that messiness look like um, within the context of this contemporary movement to establish separate schools for Black boys?
0: right because i always think about when when we try to you know make these separate, uh, make these different particular schools i always wonder about you know going back to president obama's my brother's keeper which uh, which really which really got into got under, underneath the skin of, of many of many people especially black women who were the main who are really the people on the ground who really got his campaign started into the finish line two times, um that they don't receive anything. You know, because my brother's keeper, as it was told to me and, and as the, the policy level I've seen, it's it's a it's a public you know, it's it's a it's a brand of philanthropy. It's a genre of philanthropy. And you wonder whether or not he could have just for one did that outside of office. And then two, what's the what's the black girl what's a black girl and black woman equivalent? Um, oh, you know, and so, yeah, you know, so, can, can you speak on, on that particular part too? Yep.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a way in which, you know, you can, you know, the, there's a way to think about both the push to separate, to, to establish separate schools for black boys and my brother's keeper as part of this longer, really, you know, well-entrenched narrative that constructs black men as, as the primary victims of racism. Right. And so if you look at a lot of anti-racist politics for many years um i think there's sort of sometimes explicit more often implicit assumption that okay black people of all genders experience racism but black men experience it the most and it seems to me that it's that kind of logic that uh it was central to my brother's keeper um and central to the push to establish these schools. It's not that supporters of these things deny that Black women and Black girls experience racism, but they feel that Black men experience it more. And so their argument would be, um, this is why we need to have this sort of gender-specific focus. And of course, you know, there's, there are lots of ways to get into the data and to explore, you know, their argument I like to advance is that all Black people experience racism. How they experience it depends on their gender, right? So, for instance, you know, Black men um, have, have higher... Un- racism interacts or intersects with masculinity in ways that lead to Black men having a higher unemployment rate than Black women. That's really clear in the data. At the same time, racism interacts with femininity in ways, to lead, in ways that result in Black women consistently earning less than Black men right um and so both of those are you know and it's like how do you weigh those two um black men are more unemployed are more likely to be unemployed than black women um black women earn less than black men and you know that's just one way of sort of but a lot of it depends on how what aspects of the data you choose to emphasize but i do think that the general impetus behind my brother's keeper is this fundamental assumption that all black people experience racism but black boys experience it more and you know again that's how you you know black boys are, are more likely to be suspended from school than white boys um, but black girls are also more likely to be suspended from school th- than um, white girls right so I just I do think that there's a reflection of this sort of really deep deeply entrenched trope of blackness as a masculine thing as a masculine construct that one black men are more oppressed than black women and two that black men as men their natural role is to save the race and that we need to do whatever we can to enable black men to assume that natural kingly role you know you, you started off in, you know by referring us making that comparison which i think is great you know sort of black men as kings and in being a king you know king you know, places that have kings and queens are not democracies right um they're not so, so I think it is. So, I do see, and other people have certainly written on this um, in very eloquent ways that you know, we can see. You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I, you know, I in trying to figure out the, the sort of simultaneously anti-feminist and anti-racist dimensions of this book. I try to look at the context, and and I'm sorry, in the push for these schools, I try to do some work on, well, what's the context in which the push for these schools is emerging, like, what's going on? What else is going on in the world? And one of the things I talk about is this broader narrative of endangered Black masculinity, right? Um, That narrative is what um, allows the push for My Brother's Keeper. It's, I think, also what allows the push... um, for separate schools for black boys, and then also you made reference to the philanthropist dimension of My Brother's Keeper. You know that's basically, to put it crudely, drawing, uh, encouraging corporations, right, to donate money. Same thing happens with a lot of these separate schools for black boys. The ones that are ch- that are charter schools, as I mentioned, you know, the Walton Family Foundation, which is Walmart, um, Bloomberg, Koch Brothers, and you know, one way to think about the link between the schools and My Brother's Keeper is this sort of neoliberal moment that we're in, right? Uh, Because My Brother's Keeper, the push for separate schools for Black boys, is not just that we need separate schools for Black boys. It's also, not always, not, not among all supporters, but among many supporters, it's also that the best way of achieving these schools is through sort of neoliberal modes of education and neoliberal modes of governance. And what do I mean by that? Part of it is let's draw on corporate sponsorship. Let's draw on corporate money, right? It's that, that's part of it. Part of it is also this sort of let's black boys literally and figuratively need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? And so if black boys, it's a complex mix. On the one hand, black boys are underachieving because of structural racism. That's a huge part. And I think correct part of this argument in favor of these schools. But interwoven in that is often the sort of neoliberal right. Yeah, there's structural racism there, but it's always been there. And at the end of the day, we got to just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And, you know, if we are if black boys are failing in school, it's because of moral deficiencies among us. Black single mothers, um, sexual promiscuity. So that's also in there, that sort of right of center. You know, we are morally damaged people. And that's why our Black boys are failing in school. So I think, you know, we also should look at this sort of neoliberal moment, um, you know, as a way of explaining both My Brother's Keeper and also the push for
0: these schools. Yeah, and and I also think about how, um, you know, like you were saying, like where, contextually, like where are we situating all of these different debates? And so can you speak to us a bit about um, where some of the schools that you're, that you're writing about, where are they located specifically? Because I know that you had mentioned um, in, 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 and around Madison, Wisconsin, but what are the other uh, cases that, that you mentioned in your book?
1: Sure. So there there's a push that I should mention that the push to establish a separate school for black boys in Madison was ultimately unsuccessful. The school board voted it down. Um, however, to date about 40 other such schools have been established Um, primarily in the South and the Midwest. uh, So primarily in the South and the Midwest, some in the Northeast as well. Um, I would say, and this is sort of just my subjective judgment, but I would say that the two most successful networks of these schools would uh, be Eagle Academy schools, which are in New York, New Jersey, and then urban prep school, urban preparatory schools in the Chicago area. In both of these instances, you actually have several schools Forming a network, um, and those two sets of schools have been very successful. Um, but there are other schools, you know, scattered throughout the country. Most recently, um, in Washington D.C., uh, such a school was established. Ron Brown Preparatory High School, Prestige Academy in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, you know, so it's it's nationwide, but I would say primarily um, South and Midwest.
0: Okay, and and so, so I asked that because I always think about like geographically where where a lot of these uh, institutions are founded and, and also located because um, a lot of these are, because really when I think about a lot of these different kinds of schools, so like you know you have your charter schools and such like that. Um, I typically think about them being uh, located in um, I don't I hate the term urban, but you know in cities, um, but. But yeah, and so so can you talk about as well um what were some of the challenges that because I know that you had mentioned that the Madison one was 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 struck down, but can you talk about some of the debates that are happening in these particular locations um as, as to whether or not you know why they were successful and why they weren't?
1: Sure. Um in the Madison case, um Uh, One of the reasons that the the, the push to establish Madison Prep ultimately was unsuccessful had to do, uh, uh, there are many reasons, right? But one of the reasons had to do with unionized teachers, right? Um, As I understand it, um, the proposed school was going to require teachers to teach a longer than usual school day. Um, And the Madison School District rejected that because they felt that it went against um, their um, the guidelines that, you know, the contract they had established, the contract they'd established with unionized teachers. So I think in the, so that has been not just in Madison, but in, you know, that has been one area of contention. Um, I know with urban prep in Chicago, they actually were ultimately taken to court by teachers who had been trying to unionize at urban prep. And partly because of urban prep's embrace of a sort of neoliberal educational model, they're quite opposed Sometimes more implicitly, but quite opposed to any effort to unionize um, their teachers again not uh, no that in that contrast with say eagle academies um, in in uh, New York, New Jersey, where they have been more open to having unionized teachers so I don't want to say that it's a monolith um, eagle academies I think stand out in that regard, but there are many of these schools that are quite opposed to unionized teachers because they regard unions as sort of white controlled white dominated um Arenas and spaces. Um, and they see not all again, but many of the leaders of these schools see unions as yet another manifestation of structural racism. Now, you know, some of the teachers, some of the teachers at urban prep pushed back and said that, you know, most of the teachers who were trying to unionize, there are many of them were in fact black, and so, you know, that also fits, that's also part and parcel of the neoliberal moment. Um. So in the context of Madison, one of the reasons the school didn't make it was they couldn't come to the the pr- people proposing the school and the school district couldn't come to some sort of consensus around the teacher contracts and, you know, the longer hours, um, the longer school day, et cetera. In other parts of the country, there have been debates about, um, you know, some of this plugs into the, the broader conversation about charter schools and how much um, public school systems are willing to relinquish control um, to charter schools and to experimental educational initiatives. And, you know, that, again, is also, you know, it's a very complicated racial politics. Because one of the things that I argue at the end of the book is that I do think we need more Black self-determination around education. Um, and, I, you know, and I think that one of the ways forward as we think about these schools is to both embrace public school education as something that is beneficial, but also recognize that often Black people have not benefited from public school education, right? So I think part of the sort of tension and debate around these schools and why some of them have failed has to do with sort of the role of public education. Is it okay if teachers at these schools work longer hours, and get paid less than public school teachers? Is that okay? Um, Question mark. So I think these are some of the struggles. And then, of course, one of the other broader conversations or one of the broader reasons why some of these school initiatives have failed is this issue about whether or not boys and girls do, in fact, have different learning styles. One of the chief rationales for these schools is that Boys, including black boys, are tactile, physically aggressive learners. Girls are more verbal and more passive. And you'll see that over and over in the literature in favor of these schools. Some of these school initiatives have failed because either the public or educators or the relevant school board say that there is no empirical evidence that this is the case, that there are many girls who are tactile learners there are many boys who are verbal learners right so i think it's around it's in terms of thinking about the success or failure of some of these school initiatives i think it's you know issues around teacher contracts unionization and probably even more fundamentally a real fundamental uh disagreement about whether different genders do in fact have different learning styles because if you reject the idea that different genders have different learning styles, then there's probably no rationale. Many people would say for establishing separate schools for black boys.
0: Yeah. And, and I, and I do wonder, um, about, and for, for one, I definitely think that black folks, you know, self-determination for, for education is definitely as important now as it is ever. um, and 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 I always wonder especially because I come from an educational space at least in the secondary in the primary and secondary sense where you know I there there was no you know district wide there was not an opportunity for me to do that so I went to a very predominantly white school um and so I always wonder about that as far as you know what was You know, as far as like the students. Right. Because I always think about like, so I was listening to a podcast even, you know, yes, I do listen to other podcasts than my own. It it does happen. Um, But I was listening to a podcast called The Nod, which talked about the um, Memphis uh, 14 or whatever, uh, Memphis 10, excuse me, um, a group of African-American students who desegregated schools in Memphis, Tennessee. And they highlighted the story of one african American then boy and now man who talked about the 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 pain that segregation like that lasted for him pretty much throughout his whole life right and and kind of like the burden that 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 put on him and in ways that his parents never felt because they never had to deal with all of that and now I'm not making a a, a a, a 100% parallel, but really saying, I wonder about the, the students as far as what is their, right. Um, push towards going to a school, you know, like the one that was going to be founded at Madison or the one Charleston or the, uh, the other schools. Right. And, and I wonder about that. Do, do you find of any cases of the students, um, having like a voice on, on this kind of educational, um, lens?
1: you mean in terms of once the schools are established or just in terms right. of the push to establish
0: well a, a bit of are, both yeah a bit a bit of both if, if there's yeah if there's evidence there
1: i certainly think in the popular discourse and you know and sort of my methodology was sort of looking at newspaper articles and right. you know there are a lot of student voices there are a lot of black boys advocating for these kinds of schools, either because they think that they need to be, you know, they find black girls to be sexual distractions or because they think that black people, including black boys need a space for self-determination. So definitely you will, I mean, it's primarily adult voices in the push for these schools, but there are many instances in newspaper articles, interviews, um, you know, where we see black boys saying, yes, I want this kind of space. Now, in terms of once the schools are established, I, that I think is a little bit murkier, because um, it seems to me that when once many of these schools are established, they actually—and I should make a distinction—in the early days, and uh, you know, the first such school appeared in the 1990s. Uh, in um, the early days, a lot of these schools had a much more Afrocentric focus, um, like the Malcolm X Academy in, in D.C. Um, mm-hmm. And I think in that instance, there was a lot more rhetoric and not just rhetoric practice around black self-determination. Um, some, Not all, again, I was wary of sort of homogenizing, but, you know, I think some of the newer incarnation, the schools, the newer incarnation of these schools, not all of them, but many of them are more tied to a sort of neoliberal ethos. And I emphasize that because I think many of the more recent schools are not particularly wedded to an Afrocentric focus. Um, some of them are, but many of them are more well wedded to sort of a very traditional high school hierarchies where the structures of the schools are quite hierarchical. Some of them, not all of them, take a sort of boot camp approach, right? A sort of military discipline type approach. And then there are others that I think do encourage more critical analysis among the students. Um, you know, how egalitarian these leadership structures are in these schools, I think, is subject to debate. Um, but I definitely think that in the rhetoric in favor of these schools, there are a lot of young black boys whose voices we hear. And I think that makes sense because as I said, and one of the things I end the book with is that one of the advantages of these schools is that they help legitimate and further the cause of black self-determination and education, which is really important. And of course we have a long history of that, right? The pan African network of schools in the 1970s uh, uh, across the nation. So I think that's one of the potential advantages of these schools they have the capacity to further a sort of radical black self-determination around education. Um, now I emphasize capacity because you know it's possible to establish a separate school for black boys and turn it into a sort of military style boot camp which has nothing to do with Pan-Africanism, or, you know, some of the more successful schools, for instance, Urban Academy, the curriculum there is very much based on what, you know, was often described as sort of a classic curriculum, right, where the emphasis is on exposing the students to sort of what we in many ways, we might consider, you know, a traditional white canon, right, of learning the focus there is not particularly Afrocentric, right. So perhaps that's a kind of black self determination, but one that is not Particularly focus on a radical black politics, right? But I do think these schools have this capacity to to further a kind of um, radical black self determination around education. Whether that capacity is always realized is another story.
0: Mm, mm. And and so with that, can <clears throat> and, and and yeah, and and that's why I think that your your book is so important because what it does, it provides us. Um, a really interesting view into the the kinds of schools you know that that to a certain degree that a lot of these types of schools they're imaginative spaces right they they're a way for us to you know build the kinds of schools that you know yeah not everyone is going to be successful you know in whatever way success is determined per institution, but they are institutions where we can imagine and try to, you know, include the these, you know, these different kinds of politics in our schools, to where, hey, if there are going to be um, uh, uh, single gender um, institutions, and in this, in this case, uh, uh, black boy, uh, black schools for boys, black male schools, then, you know, how can we incorporate black feminist politics? And 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 I think that your book incorporates so many different elements and uh and like we mentioned offline it uh it ruffled i'm sure you know uh, uh so, some 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 feathers might have been ruffled just, just just a tad uh to, to say the least too and uh could you just talk a little bit you know i'm not petty or anything i am not um i just like to know is what was you know what was the um i guess reception to this kind of work too, because I've been in communities and been in in community with people in the education space who this kind of book would be uh, a bit controversial, shall we say?
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely, and I think the arguments I make in- there are multiple ways in which I think the arguments I make potentially ruffle feathers. One, I think my unwillingness to label these schools as entirely good or bad in and of itself ruffles feathers, right? I'm supposed to reach a conclusion. I'm supposed to reach a consensus and I don't do that. So I think there are ruffled feathers at that level. There are obviously ruffled feathers um, among people who are huge supporters of these schools and who would resist my argument that there's a strong patriarchal dimension um, to both the, uh the rhetoric in favor of these schools and in terms of sort of the practice the pedagogical practices of some of these schools thirdly i i think i ruffle some feathers of feminist critics of these schools because i think many of the feminist critics of these schools simply look at the gendered and the patriarchal dimensions of some of the schools without really taking seriously the ways in which these schools do offer Critical insight into structural racism and the manifestations of structural racism, right? So it's and and so there there's some feminists or many feminist commentators who critique the schools as you know biased patriarchal spaces without really seriously considering the pro- progressive racial work or anti racist work that the schools do. So I think there are ruffled feathers in those <laughs> three arenas, right? Um, and then also also some ruffled feathers in terms of you know I mentioned earlier that I come up for you know when I when I began to see these schools as spaces that both challenge racism and perpetuate sexism, I had to then try to figure out, well, why? It's not enough to say that that's how it is and let's just deal with it. Why? And one of the explanations I come up with is that the schools and the people, many of the proponents of the schools provide us with firm evidence that this, this concept of intersectionality can be used For a variety of political purposes, right? And intersectionality, you know, is this idea that people are oppressed at the crossroads of different sort of isms and schisms. To put it very crudely, Um, you know, I'm not oppressed um, only because I'm black, but also because I'm a black woman. So how I experience racism is feminized, for instance, right? And how I experience patriarchy is racialized. Traditionally, we thought of, and for a long time, I thought of intersectionality because it's pioneered by Black women in wonderfully important, innovative ways. And for a long time, I thought of it as an automatically Black feminist thing, right? One of the things that I began to think about as I delved more and more into my research about these schools and about the conversation in favor of these schools is that many of the proponents of these schools embrace the logic of intersectionality. However, they don't always do it And really, they don't always do it in ways that we would describe as particularly feminist or black feminist. So what do I mean by that? What I mean, one of the things I mean is that, you know, one of the core arguments in favor of these schools is that we need them because black boys are victims of racist, feminized classrooms. The argument that many of the proponents of these schools make is that black boys are oppressed in school, not just because they're black, but because they're black boys, right? Not just because their teachers are white and racist, but because their teachers are white, racist, and and feminized, right? This is an intersectional argument. The, the proponents of these schools are saying it's not just that Black boys experience racism in school. How they experience racism is a reflection of their masculinity. So, you know, these racist white teachers assume that because they're Black boys, they're not only... Um, sort of hypersexual and immoral, but they're going to express their hypersexuality and their supposed immorality in really masculine ways like being sexual predators by, you know, by being inclined to rape people, right? This is an intersectional argument, I, I think. Uh, you know, many of the proponents of these schools also argue that they're oppressed because these racist, not, because these teacher, not only because these teachers are racist and white, but because they're women and because they're women, they're not clued in to black boys supposedly natural testosterone-driven need for a sort of highly physical, aggressive type of classroom space. This is also an intersectional argument, I think a somewhat less progressive one. But the argument here is that black boys are not only being oppressed because they're black, but because they're in forced to learn in feminized classroom spaces that that run counter to their quote unquote natural masculine tendencies, right? So These are all intersectional arguments, it seems to me. The second one I laid out, however, is not a particularly feminist argument because it rests on this assumption that there are profound gender, natural, inherent gender differences in how boys and girls function. But I still think it's an intersectional argument, right? So one of the things I lay out in the book, and it's a difficult pill for me to swallow myself, is that intersectionality can often be used in ways that it was not intended right? Um, and, I, you know, intersectionality is not unique in this way. If you were to ask Karl Marx about some of the ways in which Marxism has been used, he might probably say, yeah, that's not quite how I intended it to be used. So I think, you know, I, I, but I, you know, I, and this is, it ruffles feathers, yes, because traditionally we think of intersectionality as that which is as deployed um, in the service of Black feminism and a black feminist agenda, and I'm making the argument that that is often the case, but that is not always the case, right? And um, I in in the there are parts of the book where I refer to other groups who I think are using intersectionality, not always for progressive feminist ends.
0: And uh, and and I think that part of your of your text about the the interrogation or the incorporation. Um, of intersectionality in the um in the kind of like pedagogy and and really the the surrounding surface of of many of these uh, of of these uh, all black male um school institutions I think was one of the parts that i you know I'm not gonna lie um as I was reading I was kind of scratching my head at first I was like, um dr lindsay what 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 is going on what what are you doing i I, I don't remember ever reading about this. you know kind of a corporation but you know that's the point of reading books it expands your mind to horizons that you never thought um and and so thank you for that but also um you know thank you because what it does is that you know it adds on to the kind of literature about intersectionality because you know i feel like you know you spoke about this before um you know one of the uh, one of the new ventures I'm 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 going out f- on for the new books Network work in the next year is actually going to be a podcast centered on, you know, de- kind of like debates in in black uh, academia and, and discussions in black academia where we're going to actually be talking about intersectionality and kind of the foundation of it and kind of how it's you know you know how it's emerged but also how it's moved maybe away, uh, in certain ways from. From what its uh, at least uh, original articulation was, and you know, you see this also a lot with the respectability politics as well, because I feel like people use that "daggum" thing so often that I just don't even think anybody knows what the hell it is anymore. And to the point where you know, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham is at conferences looking at people like, or Dr. Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham is looking at people like, yeah, yeah, y'all do realize that's not what I meant, right? When I was writing Righteous Discontent" before some of y'all people were even born, so.
1: yeah yeah no i think i think that's fantastic and you know this is there is an ongoing debate among scholars of intersectionality that i'm part of right i mean there there are several of the black feminists who have also sort of you know beginning to have have interrogated um you know in what direction is intersectionality going some people view the fact that intersectionality is being co-opted for conservative uses as um sort of You know, intersectionality having lost its way. Right. It's being co-opted. It's being sort of detached from its black feminist roots. Um, Other people say that, yes, that is happening. Um, Intersectionality is being used for a variety of um, political ends now, but that actually doesn't that actually does not suggest that there's some inherent limitation in intersectionality It actually shows the power of it, right. That it can be used in a variety of ways. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that I am not pleased that intersectionality in some ways, uh, the, the intersectionality in the context of these schools is often used to advance an anti-feminist agenda. I'm not pleased with that, but I recognize that as a reality, um, that has to be addressed. And I think I argue that intersectionality can be used for a Black feminist agenda when it's explicitly put, put to use in that way. But I don't think that in and of itself, right? It's there, it's a concept, it's a brilliant concept, it's a brilliant analytical framework, but in and of itself, it's not gonna lead us to a Black feminist um, politics. That's, that's work that has to be done, right? I don't think the concept itself, in and of itself, Um, is always going to lead us in that direction. But certainly that's the direction I want to go in, and I spent a a lot of the book towards the end talking about, well, how do we come up with certain models of educational advocacy that can push intersectionality in that direction? So I want to emphasize it's not that I'm pleased that intersectionality is often used in anti-feminist ways, it's just that I recognize it as a reality that has to be dealt with.
0: And and you're definitely... uh and you definitely did that you definitely incorporated that particular uh that particular you know not critique but that kind of incorporation that uh that i think is needed because um you know what i think a lot of your the readers of this book because yes people are gonna pick this book up you know shout out to university of illinois press don you know and everybody else over there at the team you know yeah oh yeah i i met her at Asala uh last month and you know it was great and so um you know th- definitely thank her and the rest of the team for this awesome book and thank you to you for this phenomenal book as the writer um because i think that you know going back i think this book does really well in really incorporating intersectionality in a way that i don't think like i said a lot of people kind of realize. Um, But, you know, that's, that's the, like I said, that's the point of books that they're supposed to incorporate stuff in this like, Oh snap. I didn't know that. I don't know that, that, could that, you know, this and this can, you know, really uh connect. And so I uh, thank you for that. Um And so, you know, this book is published this year Um and, and, you know, we don't, we, we don't want to, you know, throw any more weight on you because, you know, you know, there, there's a lot of things going on in, in Wisconsin right now that, that, you know, could be, That could be really, you know, that could really take the weight and the burden off of you in certain ways. So we don't want to add anything else. But at the New Books in African American Studies channel, we are a bit greedy at times. And so uh, we always like to know when can we... um, when can we also bring back our authors for, for second, third, fourth, and maybe even 10th interviews. Um, so what's, what's the, what's the, the, what's next for you? Uh, what, what else are you working on? Are you taking some time off Are you, you know, taking a breath, you know, so, so, so what's next for you?
1: What Right. A great question, I am on sabbatical this year, but still working on my second book project, which in some ways is taking me back to my literal and figurative roots so the second book project um, it's still sort of in development that 's a nice way of describing it I, i'm going be look yeah i'm going to be looking at i 'm interested in looking at black women who have defined themselves as black ladies right who present themselves as black ladies and who argue that their black ladyhood uniquely situates them to challenge racism and I am I'm, I'm doing a sort of diasporic type thing I'm probably going to look at um Amy Bailey uh in who was a Jamaican um uh Jamaican women's rights activist um uh, the century and into the, uh, the 20th century I'll probably look at Anna Julia Cooper um, the other folks I'm going to look at are sort of still subject to debate. I may uh, examine a, a woman from Ghana, but I'm really interested in black women who self present as ladies because I think, you know, I'm always interested in ruffling feathers, right? I'm sure you figured that out, but I, yes, but I like black women who self present as ladies and who really present themselves as hyper feminine. And I think one of the things that intrigues me about these women is that they challenge the feminist notion that to embrace a sort of traditional gender politics, you know, hyper feminine, always well put together, that there's something retrograde about that, where I think the argument I want to make is that there is something about the sort of hyper feminine presentation of blackness that allows these women to do some very interesting, um, engage in some very interesting um, politics that certainly has elements that I would not deem to be the most progressive, but also has elements that are quite progressive and quite radical, and so i 'm really interested in the embrace of traditional ladyhood and traditional patriarchal politics. you know sit properly, dress well don 't leave the house unless you 're well put together kind of thing and i 'm really interested in the embrace of ladyhood for as a means of sort of advancing a very radical black politics because what 's interesting to me about a lot of these women is they don't think that they're equal to white people. They think they're superior to white people because they're ladies. And that's really interesting to me. So that's a new project. I'm sort of, you know, returning to my, I'm really a a scholar of the diaspora. That's how I think of myself. So I'm really interested in looking at what black ladyhood, how it manifests itself throughout the diaspora and what radical possibilities are possibly are potentially there. And there are contemporary versions of this, like Serena Williams as well, right? Playing in her black tutu, you know, um, and so that's the new project, so I'll be looking this time primarily at uh, self-identified Black women and Black ladies and the potential radical politics of Black ladyhood.
0: Another project that uh, I cannot wait to bring you on the on the program for because, you know, uh, you, I, as you said before, you like to ruffle feathers and I, I like to listen to people and, and, and read about people uh, ruffling the feathers of many of our, uh, our colleagues in the field and, and throughout throughout the culture. So um, thank you once again, Dr. Lindsay, you have been a phenomenal person to chat to for like the last 51 minutes and 12 seconds and counting. Um, And so once again, we've had Dr. Uh, Keisha Lindsay, uh, Associate Professor of Gender and Women's Studies and Political Science at the University of Wisconsin at Madison about her phenomenal book published by her friends at the University of Illinois Press this year entitled in a classroom of their own the intersection of race and feminist politics in all black male schools thank you once again dr lindsey we will chat with you very soon once this new uh black ladies project um comes out but until next time i'm your host adam mcneil host of the channel and at the university of delaware adam mcneil new books african-american studies channel folks over and out